Hello and welcome to Librarians Allowed, a podcast about librarian journeys. I'm your host, Laura Rooney Ferris, coming back at you with another episode already, and this is a good one. Ahead of the IFLA World Library and Information Congress, I talked to Cahill McCauley, University Librarian at Maynooth University and President of the Library Association of Ireland, the professional body representing libraries and librarianship in Ireland. We talked about Cahill's route through the profession, about the challenges library workers continue to grapple with due to the pandemic, including the ongoing campaign to realise fair and sustainable pricing in the ebook market. As co-chair of the Irish National Committee, Cahill also talked about what IFLA visitors can expect during their time here this month. Thank you so much for joining me on Librarians Allowed. Do you want to give me uh, some, some background on, on your own journey into librarianship? I'm, I'm very curious about how you ended up going from accountancy and consulting into librarianship. Well, thanks very much, Laura. And first of all, before I go any further, I'd just like to you know, thank yourself for doing this podcast. It's a good example of the kind of innovation that really attracted me to work in librarianship and why I still enjoy working in librarianship. So well done for that. Um, yeah, I suppose, look, like a lot of people, I guess, I wasn't uh, a born librarian by any means. In fact, when I was mm-hmm. in university, I was a rather keen sociologist. Um, but when I was graduating from Trinity, uh, there weren't that many postgrad options, really, at least none that I could find, particularly ones, frankly, that had funding available as well. So I wasn't really sure what to do for that year. And at the time, there were positions called graduate trainees in a few different places. And I applied for a couple of them and I was offered one in UCD and I worked there for um, a year. And I really, really enjoyed it, I have to say. And, um, you know, the way it was structured, you got to try a bit of everything and so on. So I was both in the subject department, I was on the front desk and everything in between. And that went really, really well. I really enjoyed it. And as a result of that, I did apply to go to uh, what was then SILS and UCD uh, for the Masters. And again, I have to say one thing that made that very attractive was at the time, the EU and their wisdom had decided that there was an undersupply of librarians in the labour market. So every mm. year there was a chance the opportunity, the course would be free. And uh, but you didn't find out until about November. So you'd start the course and you were either on the hook for about, I think it was about three or four thousand pounds back in the day. This would be 1997, I think it was. Um, or you'd get your 50 pound deposit back. And anyway, my year, long story short, was one of those lucky years where we got the word that the EU decided to fund it for another year. And I could say we had a great night out the night. We all got our 50 pounds back. <laughs> we had kind of had already yeah. written off. And uh, it was one of many social occasions with librarians I've enjoyed since, I have to say. Um, and that was all going really well. Loved the course. But when it came out, I guess the cold winds of recession were blowing yet again at the time. Mm. And there weren't very many opportunities. I did have a few hours in uh, the Earth Terrace Medical Library, but it you know, wasn't really enough to live on and so on and I, I i responded to an ad uh from the county firm called farrell grant sparks and it really taught me a few things pretty quickly because first of all they could actually see the celtic tiger coming long before the public sector if you like was preparing for the celtic tiger so they were actually tooling up for what they knew was going to be sort of a period of economic development and they wanted a librarian in place because um the management consultancy firm essentially was uh, a sort of a private research firm. So if you really wanted to launch a new product or open a new business, or even if the government wanted to explore a new idea like the liberalisation of the of the electricity market or um, the fire safety arrangements in the country, were another couple of things I worked on, you know, there would be a bit of work to get comparative data, for example, for other European countries and all that together. And they wanted a librarian to both do that, but then also to provide professional library support to other members of the firm, you know, things like tax rates, exchange rates for audits, that kind of stuff. So I went into that and um, it was pretty far from where I thought I'd end up, but it ended up that I went even further because what happened then, which again was another insight into the flexibility, I guess, that was in the private sector, as things got busier and busier and the Celtic Tiger heated up, they more or less said to me one day, look, we're so busy here, you know, you can stay being a librarian if you want, or you know, you're well able to write and you're well able to research. So essentially, we can turn you into a consultant and we need more consultants because we're so busy. And um, they asked me, would I do that? So I said I would. 
But and this is I'm so glad at the time. I don't know where I had the neck to do it, but I kind of I would as long as I retained responsibility in relation to the library because I did always mm. I had this kind of thing in the back of my mind. I didn't want to let go that professional experience and connection that I had. So they said fine and um, started working as as a consultant and I was allowed hire at the time, which was revolutionary. There I was a solo single solo librarian, but I hired a librarian and a library assistant to run the library in my absence and then I went off being a consultant for about six seven eight years and I have to say I really enjoyed it I did very well at it I ended up being a director of the consultancy unit and you know traveled all around the world and Europe and all over Ireland in that capacity and learned a great deal and met great people and really enjoyed it but Around 2002, yet again, the recession was starting. There was another recession coming. And I, but that, I, I that, mean, that's a recurring feature in these conversations, about like boom and bust and, and the response well, to it. And, and, and particularly the private sector, like, you know, they, they flex up and they flex down very quickly. So mm. I really had a choice to make. First of all, UCD were hiring at the time, UCD Library. And I kind of knew from previous experience that when the shutters come down, they could be down for years. So I kind of, you know, if I didn't make the move then, I might be able to make it for some time. But also if I stayed on in the firm I was in at the time, because I had done quite well, the next step would have been partner. And the way they work, those firms work, is that I have to sort of buy into the firm. That would be the equivalent of a large mortgage. So it would be very difficult at that stage to extract myself. So at that point then, I decided I would go for a couple of library jobs. Didn't get the first one or two. And I remember being very disappointed when I didn't. Uh, but then I did get the call from UCD and I have to say I took a massive pay cut and all the rest of it back into good old I remember some of my friends and family thought I'd had some sort of breakdown or something but I'd never looked back I'd lied. I really enjoyed my time working at UCD library I worked with great people there um, I was very lucky to have managers like Marie Burke and Pauline Gargan who gave me a lot of attitude to do some of the stuff I guess I became known for like you're known for your podcast mm-hmm. like like, this sounds crazy but say now but back then I was revolutionary when I introduced a uh, instant messaging chat service and all this kind of stuff um, that was very revolutionary at the time well it was at the time yeah, yeah. but uh, it sounds always kind of funny saying that now we're setting up a Facebook page or uh, Twitter mm. accounts all this kind of stuff but you know that dependence on managers give me the latitude to do that kind of stuff because I was still quite junior and yeah. so very great for that and then great colleagues as well like Deborah McCann and Albert Patterson and Anne Conway and Eve O'Brien who worked with those things then because that meant they were successful you know it's one thing to have an idea but it's another thing you know to get your colleagues support to actually make it work so I really really enjoyed that um but then um I knew and the great thing about the public sector is the predictability like so I knew that the then librarian at Maynooth was retiring but I have to say and I think I've said told people of this so I'm not afraid if you like to tell this story publicly in some ways uh, what I really wanted was Helen Fallon's job because I assumed Helen Fallon, she was already this colossus in the library world that she would, you know, just yeah. step up to the next level of Maynooth and then I would have a, a chance maybe at getting her job. And I remember being quite upset when I heard to the grapevine that Helen wasn't going for the <laughs> the, the top job at Maynooth. And that kind of forced me then to make a decision. Like I either took a chance or I just kind of waited. But again, as we know, uh, the pros and cons of the different sectors, like you could be waiting quite a lot, dying down for someone else to retire. Yeah. So again, I did take a chance and I've no doubt it was the kind of latitude and support and everything else I got in UCD that helped me to get that job But in Maynooth as a university librarian. But I have to say I was still really shocked and delighted uh, to get that job. But yet again, recession reared its head. So I remember I did two interviews for the university librarian job. And the first was around March 08. And it was all about, you know, the new building and how what I was going to do to develop the service. And the second one was June 08. So only three months later. And it was, all, it was the first time I heard an interview doing more with less you know, because, uh, mm. you know, that phrase we've all come to hate. Yes, the, the cold wind hadn't quite blown fully yet, but the signs were there that things were getting quite grim. And um, uh, uh, and luckily, because I had been through that cycle, as I said before, boom, bust, I was able to draw on a few uh, experiences to, to, to be able to speak to that. Uh, and then, of course, very quickly, then the world did uh, have a serious downturn that lasted a number of years in Ireland in particular. Um, so yeah, that was a challenging start, I guess, to my period as, as a university librarian. But we, as I always said, we had the beacon all through that time of building the new library extension, which we have out there. Mm-hmm. And that really did help um, brighten some of the darkest times that we, you know, that we were going through as a country and as, and as a profession, I guess. Mm. Do you think coming from uh, the consultancy background and coming from that kind of uh, private sector and an environment where you were taught to kind of 
synthesize information quickly and ra respond rapidly and look at the horizon and, and adapt and uh, I suppose what we're all used to now pivoting to, to to what's what's approaching did that do you feel kind of stand to you once you did get into me then and you were having to deal with you know an oncoming recession and trying to you know adjust into the, the prevailing winds yeah I'd have to say I think it did like both in terms of first of all because of my background and, and, and because to help me do my job as a librarian actually I was doing it before I became a consultant I'd actually undertaken a diploma in accounting and finance so I could understand the kind of questions I was getting and so on because it was so alien to me as someone who had a history and sociology degree um, but what a, a side effect of that was I wasn't afraid of money if you know what I mean since I wasn't afraid of yeah. dealing with difficult situations uh, you know that maybe were, were rooted in finances and so on so that was one thing definitely help me but also yeah I would have to say the pace at which we had to work sometimes in the consultancy business prepared you for that pace of change that we were facing at the time of the financial crisis you know when the the different rules and restrictions seemed to come in you know a pace and I have to say more recently as well then in terms of responding to the COVID situation again if that kind of pace mm. I suppose I, I wasn't I wasn't unfamiliar with it if you like I'm not saying I particularly enjoy it or I'd recommend it or anything else yeah. but it wasn't certainly unfamiliar so uh, yeah I think it did help I would have to say and just that different perspective um, uh, I mean one thing I envy a bit about the uh, the private sector still is uh, because I do worry sometimes uh, you know like they have a great they have a great um, clarity in terms of like at the end of the day it's the bottom lines what counts you know I think yeah. and I think some of the issues that we might get cut up in sometimes is because there isn't maybe consensus around what the priority is whereas when you're in business it's very clear what the priority is and that actually can help someone particularly if there is a crisis because you know it does give you that sort of clarity of purpose if you like which sometimes then when we're in working in more nuanced sectors there isn't that sort of clarity yeah, it does kind of cut cut through things when some someone suddenly just comes in and goes, look, it's 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 about the bottom line. Do we have the money to do this or do we not? And like you said, exactly. I think it probably was beneficial to you not being afraid of the finance side because I think um, as you progress through in librarianship, you're often ending up in situations where you're managing projects or managing budgets, and it can be a real daunting task if you don't have any experience with it and most librarians don't you might have done maybe a little bit of budget management sure. so it can be quite quite frightening um so i'm sure that was uh beneficial faced with a rapidly changing environment around you and probably then going into uh, you worked through the the process of developing the the new library which opened in what 2013 you know over that's right yeah yeah and that was a great say that was a great opportunity it was it would have been a great opportunity anytime but it was particularly nice to have such a pleasant task uh in hand mm -hmm. during a time when really lots of other parts of the country and the profession and just the world generally were falling apart you know that we had this very positive kind of beacon if you like to be working towards mm -hmm. uh um, throughout really throughout that period like certainly throughout the darkest times that period uh, and ironically you know one of my favorite phrases and my team would be sick of hearing it but I do say a lot like every cloud is a silver lining and like one of the yeah. silver lines that particular cloud for us doing the building project at the time was we probably got a building of a quality and a scale that we couldn't have afforded five years earlier had the tiger still been roaring because a bit like it's happening a bit now construction mm -hmm. costs at the time were you know shooting up becoming really really difficult uh, the price of things were shifting by the day whereas uh, if they were shifting by the time we started building that that that, that project back in um uh 2010 or thereabouts uh, the prices were falling all the time you know so it was actually helpful in that regard uh so yeah it was really nice to have that there said when there were so many other grim things happening yeah um and just spe speaking of, of grim things and and rapid changes were was the, the big difference since when I last was doing this podcast and, and doing it now is just how much we've all been through over the last two years. And as as libraries, we've had to completely reevaluate how we deliver services, how uh, how we communicate, how we manage our teams, how, how we structure everything um, and even just how we uh, interact with each other and you know how cognizant we are of what's going on in each other's lives and resilience and the importance of, kind of every, everything that people bring um, when they come into the work environment. How do you feel the last couple of years has been for for you personally and for you and the, the, the team in Maynooth? 
Yeah, well, I guess I was thinking about this, and uh, I mean, first of all, and it's, it's it is a tricky one because it's sort of how you phrase it can be important because I wouldn't want this to be misconstrued. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I actually think that live is really, you know, came out very well from the pandemic in the sense that it, across the sectors, they 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 were um, amongst the first to kind of really stand up and get involved in 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 responding in a positive way when you know when lots of other areas for very good reasons more or less were still in kind of hunker down mode if you like so I know that for example in the my colleagues in the public um, library sector were very quickly um, uh, reallocated to things like uh, contact tracing um, uh, community mm. community outreach calls and all the rest of it um, and even some colleagues I know in academic libraries as well and people in the health sector as well have suddenly became massively busy supporting uh, the the work of people like Neffet and so on in terms of their uh, literature reviews and all that kind of stuff so you know first of all I think uh, librarians were incredibly busy during uh, the pandemic and it's important to recognize that I think a major challenge for us now actually is people are really tired because there still hasn't mm. been that break and I mean and right now as we're speaking uh, unfortunately, you know, we probably have more people out in, in my place uh, than we've had since maybe uh, January or March this year with COVID than we've had for quite some time. So, you know, it's still it's still a challenge that you have to bear in mind. As someone else said to me recently, it's another layer of complexity. So whatever you're planning and whatever you're thinking of doing, you now have to yeah. kind of lie this other layer of complexity over to consider it about. Um, but once that sort of emergency response phase was was um, was dealt as well, I mean, one thing again, I think that the libraries and this is it's a real challenge. We talk about a lot in academic libraries and maybe you do in other libraries as well. But, you know, because libraries are so good, sometimes we're taken for granted, I'd have to say. So a lot mm-hmm. of this, you know, I remember seeing in different other sectors, different other parts, even of the third of the of the HE sector. Oh, wow. You know, now they're doing service to instant messaging and now they're accepting online forms. I mean, a lot of libraries were there years beforehand um, because of innovation and often yeah. because of our resourcing issues and so on. So we were probably better prepared in some parts of the of, of the wider sector uh, for the pandemic because of that. And we already, for example, had invested heavily in things like ebooks and online journals and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, the big issue that we faced, obviously, certainly in academic libraries was um, and it, but in a way, and this sounds kind of almost dangerous to say it, but it did address an argument. I mean, when I was going back to what I said earlier, when I was building the new library back in 2010, I had this very senior colleague from outside the library say to me, well, do we really need libraries anymore? It's all available online, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, and I kind of stung. And of course, I went to kind of be defensive and then I kind of, well, I'll be a bit more rational and so on. But certainly the pandemic has, you know, has demonstrated there is a, still an enormous demand for physical library space because that was the one uh, service we provide that did come under pressure. First of all, it wasn't available at all, obviously in the dark, in the deepest lockdowns, and then for a prolonged period it was available, but on very restricted conditions, which it really showed you actually what what people value about libraries and don't like when we start running the place, you know, so strictly with all these rules and regulations and having to sign in and you know capacity dramatically reduced and so on. So I mean that in itself was. I think a salary lesson both for ourselves, if any of us had any doubts, I'm not sure many of us did, but particularly for others maybe that we work with that might have had doubts about the need for a physical library. You could really see that demand mm-hmm. that was there. Um, um, but apart from that, as I said, then, you know, I think the our, 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 our natural and sort of sustained over, as long as I've been working on a relationship, kind of, in, you know, inclination to innovate and to provide services in new ways and to meet our users wherever they are, really helped us throughout the pandemic and uh and i certainly you know in no way kind of delighted right that it happened but very pleased with the way that libraries and librarians dealt with the pandemic and very pleased that it demonstrated those strengths which we always knew we had but i think others didn't maybe realize the extent that we did until they saw it in action and um you know it, it, it was great to see things like um you know, very high profile figures praising libraries and praising the availability of ebooks and mm. delighted with things like the community call and so on. And, you know, it's important we do that as well, because ultimately that's going to influence people down the road who are allocating resources and who are making decisions. And if you look at the position that the libraries have found themselves in other jurisdictions in recent years and so on, you know, we shouldn't take that for granted. Uh, it's one thing I would say librarians can be guilty of some is that we because we know how good we are and we know the good work we do, we assume that others will understand and recognize that. And of course, the mm-hmm. difficulty is that's not the case. You know, um, it's either, I'd say, taken for granted 
or else it's sort of invisible because it's like everything else, you know, unless it's causing a problem, you know, the squeaky wheel gets noticed type thing. So, yeah, exactly. uh, I think, you know, so, so, um, yeah, so I think that's, you know, in terms of the pandemic, I think really coming out of it now, uh, you know, and hopefully some of the restrictions at least easing, even though they still with us. Um, there's certainly a challenge for uh, academic institutions around the kind of on-campus proposition. That's definitely an issue, which obviously impacts mm-hmm. on the libraries as well, because um, there's a lot of talk about students being disengaged and so on. But someone said to me recently, and I think there might be something in this, you know, students actually, in a lot of cases, are making very rational choices. You know, if you look at the accommodation crisis, the cost of living crisis and so on, well, if you can stay at home in the west of Ireland or down south, wherever you're from, still do your course and have a part-time job and pay west of ireland or, or or south of ireland rents as opposed to dublin rents and so mm. on you know well why wouldn't you it doesn't necessarily mean you're disengaged or anything at all it might mean you're making a very yeah. sensible choice but that is not what most irish universities or irish he see themselves as and there's you know and so we have to come up with uh, a, a compelling proposition for them to come on campus and the library definitely is an important part of that because of the way that we work and the way you know the hours we tend to be open and so on um mm-hmm. so i think that's something that we need to help our institutions with but beyond that as well i think one thing i am i was worried about during the pandemic is because i'm very good at it there was so many you know changes to the next service model and all the rest which is really important stuff but it is quite operational and i think we lost sight of some of the more strategic issues that we need to kind of focus back on now that we're kind of hopefully over that emergency response phase and things Mm -hmm. like you know are we really taking a full advantage um and also aware of the challenges around things like artificial intelligence you know are we really working to make sure that the um EDI agenda in our libraries is reached to four. Um, and again, how important that is, both in terms of not just, um, you know, how our staff behave and so on, but things like our collections and even our cataloging, you know, that, that kind of thing, which I think mm. we can, you know, the recent um, uh, invasion of Ukraine has thrown that in sharp relief again, you know, the terms we use to describe certain things so on are very, yeah, very important. Efforts to de- decolonialize our collections. And exactly. Stigmatize you know, so, with the terminologies. Exactly. So to get back to all that and then crucially, and we all know this and in fact is one of the things that, you know, I think there were two things really that um, COVID seemed to sort of push to one side, which are really big just before it. The first, it was um, the whole area of privacy and GDPR. And, you know, I have a joke day, you go into a pub or a restaurant and get down the phone numbers and addresses of everyone else who was in there because, you know, various mm-hmm. places, but very casually, maybe just have a notebook or something there. You had to write it for contact tracing. But the other, obviously, was the whole uh, green and environmental agenda. So, you know, all joking aside, it's terrible. Now you, I go to some quite remote places because I like hill walking and going to beaches and so on. And you, you invariably will find a mask thrown in the ditch. Um, yeah. Obviously, everything was disposable because you didn't want to be sharing cutlery and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I think there is a massive issue for libraries, but for society as a whole, really around the whole green agenda and sustainability of, of how we do, you know, both environmentally, but also financially. You know, this idea of if we are going to be facing into a prolonged cost of living crisis, I think, apart from the financial, sorry, apart from the environmental side of it, then we do have to look at making sure that the way we do things is financially sustainable as well. Uh, and mm. they're the really big issues now that are coming to us that somehow, you know, the emergency response of COVID allowed us to almost take a break from dealing with them. But they're still they're still there in the background. And when, yeah. whenever uh, COVID eases up, they're still going to be there, you know, so mm. I think we're going to have to face them. I think from what you're saying as well, you know, you can see how in a lot of cases, the the libraries on campus, because we occupy that space, that you know, it, it's it's cross departmental, it's cross institutional, it's 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 there for everybody. We can sort of end up being kind of the canary in the coal mine. So we're we're starting to see issues bubbling up and how they're affecting people. Uh, maybe before um, other parts of the institution will. So you know, as you mentioned, the cost of living crisis and you know the the pressures on the library as a physical space. And I suppose the the pandemic and the response to it and you know how people had to adapt um, their way of interaction interaction on campus kind of put uh, an emphasis on the, the the two separate pieces of what we do the physical space and and the digital services and suppose the digital services got the the bulk of the attention initially because everyone had to retreat and, and work from home but we're, we began to see just the importance of like some of those fundamentals about people need a space and a space that's safe and, and available to them and um, all the more important when you know you're potentially traveling a long distance to get 
um, get to college every day or you're living somewhere where um, a suitable study space just isn't available. So it put it put some more emphasis back on some of those fundamentals that maybe we hadn't had to think about for a long time. Um, I know the the emphasis back on the on the digital. We put a lot of money and and effort into making more resources available um, early on in the pandemic. And this was one of the things that that came out of that was you know the uh, the crisis that began to it was it was brewing and we all knew about it. Um, mm -hmm. But the the um, the escalation of the the unsustainability of particularly ebooks, and you know you've been mm -hmm. um, very vocal and and active on uh, campaigning um, just to bring attention to uh, the situation with ebooks um, and to push for for change in that department. If you want to talk about, a bit about your experience there. Yeah, well, I, I look exactly as you were saying, uh, Laura, like it was really something that, again, in the emergency response phase, it made perfect sense. And I have to say it went well down very well with uh, faculty and with students. So on, you know, mm -hmm. is the library great? We're providing all this stuff um, very, very quickly and all the rest of it. Um, but it did really exacerbate a problem that, as you say, a lot of librarians knew was there. And um, I suppose in, in my career, I've, I've gone from a stage where the ebooks was sort of like this little niche part of your operation that was nice to have to now, certainly in Maynooth, and I'm assuming lots of other places, we'd have more ebooks now than print books. Um, yeah. And that's great and very appropriate. And I always very keen to point out I'm a big supporter of, of ebooks. Uh, I mean, going back to what I said earlier about EDI and so on, you know, anyone who for whatever reason has an issue accessing a physical book and so on, ebooks have lots of advantages and even environmentally and so on, they have lots of advantages. Um, but they also uh, really do, and I've talked quite a lot about this, but I'm very happy to talk about it again. Like they really do, uh, I suppose there's a few key, you know, issues around them. And I got the very first one that I was recently actually doing some uh, interviews with mainstream media and it was interesting to see mm -hmm. like shock that they you know so that we might even be allowed to have the ebook right that was the very first basic point so you know no matter how much money you're prepared to offer and all the rest of it um they might still might give it to you and that was a real shock because of course a lot of people now have kindles and all the rest of it and they think you know well if i can get whatever i want sort of my kindle they kind of assume maybe naively that they can get whatever they want you know if they happen to want an ebook and then it's a matter some other you know or more academic area or whatever and of course that's not the case it's not even the case in a lot of um uh public library uh, type collections either does there are serious gaps there so uh, you know as low as 10 percent of the time we can actually provide the ebook and then if you do discover that you can get the ebook uh yes you know unfortunately we have done research now to support this uh, concern if you like it's kind of um unease we had which you know it showed that ebooks can cost up to 20 percent or 20 times sorry the the price mm. of a print condition right and typically cost between three and ten times more so like a really really significant um differential there which again i suspect a lot of non-librarians are completely unaware of and you know um we were very grateful to for example our funders in 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 the higher education sector and to the government for the public um libraries you know that they did provide money in some cases specifically for ebooks during the pandemic to make sure people had access to content but i think they probably didn't realize really you know how 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 far that money would go it would go a lot less than they probably thought because of these massive differentials mm. and yeah then, i don't think there was an awareness that that money was sort of effectively going into a, a, a bucket with a hole in the bottom of it that well that's exactly it, or, it again. another one we've used another analogy like is a furnace you know and mm. and and then you know if you do if you, if you decide to swallow up that charge and you think it's worth it and all the rest of it because you're so desperate to help your faculty users get the content they want then it does come they often come with all these really weird terms conditions um about when they are available when they're not available how many people can access them sometimes you have to have named people listed to access them and again so really uh, you know fundamental challenge almost to the role of the library and the way the library wants to behave we don't want to know who's accessing our books we don't want to you know limit mm -hmm. them to people the whole point actually is and i would love you know if i don't know a history student suddenly decided that they wanted to learn about um science research ethics or whatever that you know the crossover might be not that oh because i didn't put uh, student x down on the list for access to that book they now can't access it like it's completely uh, against everything that we would really work for so mm -hmm. i guess um we sort of felt, I think myself and a couple of other people here felt kind of obliged to start making noise about this. And in October 2020, then we, the LAI issued this content crisis statement we asked. And for the first time ever that I'm aware of anyway, um, all of the other major representative organisations like um, the IUA librarians group, the TIA librarians group and so on, 
supported that um, call. Uh, and then at around the same time or beforehand, but we linked up with them around that time, um, the ebook SOS campaign in the UK was getting underway and we linked up with it. And of course, it was the exact same uh, issues. And what that showed, first of all, is first of all, it is always slightly comforting you know, to know that someone else has the same problem you have. Because sometimes, and this goes back to this perception of librarians, I think sometimes there can be a view, you know, oh, maybe they're just not that good at negotiating or maybe they're, you know, not that tough enough mm. if they're in the room. And of course, you know, uh, it's not personal to us then if some of our colleagues in a different country are having the same problem. Uh, and the other issue, of course, is it really highlights that this is part of the big publishers' strategy. It's part of their sales strategy because they're applying yeah. these um, uh, situations into each of the different markets they're operating in. Because another thing our research discovered was that it tended to be actually the big publishers that did apply the most onerous price increases and the most onerous terms and conditions. It wasn't the poor local Irish publisher who just makes an e-version of their book. Um, they Yes, there would be often a multiple there to cover their costs and so on for creating an e-book, but they were very rarely the worst offenders in terms of that. So this is a this is a kind of a, a strategy from companies to operate globally. And of course, going beyond that now, we, we um, as a result of a number of seminars and various other meetings we've had, we've had you know this experience replicated in Canada and America and Germany and so on. And um, I am hopeful at this moment in time, I suppose I'm hopeful that this campaign will have an impact. I've spoken before about how people can be a bit impatient and about six months in, myself and a colleague from the UK campaign met with someone else, another librarian, and, and they kind of said, well, what have you done? You know, like you haven't achieved anything. Mm. And you're gonna go, you know, first of all, you're dealing with literally multi-billion uh, dollar businesses here, so they're not going to give up that very profitable way of working very easily. But also a few of us like myself who've been around a while and have tried to push other changes through around things like access to e-journals and open access and so on. Like these things take a while. So like we fully expect that and we're up for that. But, the, you know, it's certainly, you know, if we start any later or do it any less, it's not going to change any quicker. So it really is incumbent upon us to basically try to you know, get in it for the long haul, keep making noises. And I do think, you know, the more people, uh, both in the in the civil service, uh, in 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 various government departments, but also in the kind of general media who are discovering now some of what we're talking about, the more there is going to be an appetite for change. Uh, like I suspect strongly, um, that if our in in our context, this change might have to come at an EU level in terms of some of the legislative change, but we're seeking around um fair and reasonable terms for access to libraries and so on. So that access. That access issue alone is uh, is addressed, but then also just in terms of uh, a, a general easier, better value, more sustainable access to ebooks. Because at the end of the day, I have to say, I you know I really much want, I very much want publishers to be um, part of the solution. They need to do a great job and all the rest of it. But it's simply a case the prices and the terms and conditions that they currently apply to most of their ebooks are are are, are onerous and challenging. Say the very uh, raison d'etre of libraries and that's not sustaining you know we would be um negligent in our duty if you like as librarians if we didn't draw attention to that so yeah. i guess that's what the campaign is about it's still going on there is a satellite uh, about it it just coming up to the world library information congress in dublin uh the sunday before i think that's the 24th of july from memory mm-hmm. uh before uh, talking all about it and also i know that uh, johan anderson from the campaign will be speaking during ifl about it as well so we're going to keep you know raising this issue keeping the profile up of it working with our, our colleagues across europe but also with our local civil servants and, and so on to keep this issue on the agenda and i've no doubt that in time you know we will uh, begin to see change yeah, I think we're sort of we're we're finally reaching kind of a, a critical mass now um, that as we're sharing experiences with each other and uh, crucially, as you said, we're, we're talking more to people who are outside the library profession and seeing the shock and the horror um, on their faces when they hear of just how extortionate the prices are. Um, it's it's build, helping us build momentum and I think it may may help us kind of push for real change as you said it's not going to it's not going to change just by putting more money in or negotiate negotiating with one individual publisher it's it's about change at kind of legislative level it's that's the only thing that's really going to change that and you you talked there about kind of journal publishing and the publishing models in general and and you've done work and advocacy towards you know open research um nationally and and internationally and you know you've been you're involved with with IRL um I think there, there's sort of the, the same challenge exists um with restrictions and sustainability on 
how we deal with publishers and how involved publishers are in moving forward, in the obstacles in moving forward with the open research agenda. I know, you know, we've seen a lot of dominance in the last couple of years of, kind of transformative agreements and article processing charges. And it's interesting to hear what your feelings would be on, on where you think we're we're going with that and what the best route forward is in terms of sustainability. Like bearing in mind, I suppose my my uh, bias is always coming from organisations that have maybe been outside of those agreements and seeing potentially um, inequalities that that can can exist. And yeah, I mean, look, it it, it is a real issue. Um, I suppose the first thing I would say is that. Um, yeah, for some major for major deals with the big publishers, IRL has done uh, these transformative deals and uh, they have been really successful. And I'd have to say they've achieved the objective in terms of uh, Ireland's percentage of open access has shot up from a very low base to uh, north of 40 percent. So that's great progress. I and mean, obviously we want to get it up there as soon as possible uh, to, towards 100 percent. But um, that's going to take some time. Um, and also, it's, I suppose it's important to note that in, in parallel to that, Ireland has also supported a number of diamond and green open access mm-hmm. initiatives as well, which haven't quite got as much attention, but uh, you know are an important part of the mix as well. But look, I think you put your finger on, uh, you know, what's going to be the real nub of the issues is when are the, when is this, when are these transformative agreements going to lead to the transformation, if you like? And mm-hmm. I don't know the answer to that question is is, is the truth of the matter, but. Um, the more um, content that becomes available, open access results them, well, then the closer we are to that to that to that moment, if you like, because obviously there'll be less and less um, of the re- so you know we call them PAR publish and read deals. There'll be less mm-hmm. of the reading uh, deals uh, or less of the reading uh, element to those deals. The more uh, becomes available open access, and that ultimately is our goal. Um, and I think maybe in the interim, what we should focus on, because again, I think that's going to take quite a while, is uh, mechanisms to try and address that inequality, particularly, I would say, uh, for uh, countries in the global south and so on, who for whom this is a, 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 um, a real challenge, but also within different disciplines. So again, mm. you know, even 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 in 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 a country like Ireland, um, these deals can be particularly successful in the in the in the science and and medical engineering areas. Where there tends to be a sort of a, a research funding base, if you like, and so on, and and most research is taking place in the context of a funded research project that can uh, allow for some of these uh, charges and so on. Whereas that's not often the case in the humanities and social sciences, where still a lot of research might be taking place in the, in the context of an individual's research, um, and um, certainly in Maynooth, for example, we'd be looking at how to do that by um, trying to essentially reallocate resources from some of those better endowed disciplines, if you like, over to the others. But still very conscious that that, that would all be in the context of a transformative process that should ultimately lead to um, uh, wider open access that is not based in APCs. But unfortunately, I think that's quite a bit away yet. Uh, I think you know, Ireland has definitely shot up the chart. If you look at something like ESAC in terms of the number of agreements we've registered there now and so on, where we've gone from essentially none to, to being one of the top countries now listed on ESAC, and that's all great progress. But there's still such a long way to go. It's very hard to say. I, I, I For example, I think um, we've already seen the timelines for Plan S and so on extended. And I think that I personally think they'll be extended mm. again. And of course, there are many good reasons for that, both in terms of the disruption caused by um, COVID and so on, which did definitely disrupt publication patterns a bit. And certainly, dist- going back mm. to what I said earlier about libraries, I think frankly disrupt people's ability to even focus on some of these issues you know when you're just struggling about do you have enough people to open the doors and do you have enough people to um you know maintain service and all the rest of it uh some of these bigger picture picture bigger picture issues were sort of put in the back burner but like some of the other bigger picture issues i mentioned they're still very much there and while i'm very pleased and happy with the steps we've taken to date in terms of the progress that we've made you know I wouldn't want anyone to be in any doubt that we do see them as transformative and not as the kind of the new normal, if you like. Um, mm. But I would I would still say, though, as I would have before in relation to the ebooks, you know, I think a lot of the publishers do a fantastic job and um, what they do would be very difficult for us to kind of 
do away with completely because of the sheer scale the scale of what they do. Um, so it is then down to the terms and conditions and to move more to what they originally should have been, which is that we're paying for a publication service at fair price and then stay in the way that leads to uh, the output being available open access rather than uh, the more traditional subscription deals or the current transformative deals on a kind of uh, on a long term basis. So that's personally where I would be uh, focusing uh, our goals because I do think, you know, many other things are going to have to change for this problem to ultimately solve. So the whole, you know, tyranny of the peer review process and what that involves and then also which impact evaluation exactly research evaluation uh, academic promotion um avenues and so on like as long as all those things are shaped in a certain way then librarians on their own are not going to be able to shift this conversation on we can certainly create uh, better avenues and so on uh, for for a publication but really some of the fundamentals won't change until some of those issues around um the wider how the wider academic world works are addressed yeah, there's a lot of complex interdependencies there. Um, I suppose, as you said, it is it's a long term project, and it's about you know seeing it in in a phased phased way. But this was our you know our national action plan for open research gives us some roadmaps, and there's definitely been a, a lot of work done on having you know, national approaches and national conversations about that. So I suppose it's just a case of kind of staying the distance, and they're yeah, all staying folks in the same direction. Yeah, and we're very lucky now that obviously we've we just quite recently North have announced the funding mm -hmm. calls for people to explore these issues, and I'm very optimistic and excited to see what comes out of those. But again, I think a bit like the ebooks, I think crucially it's how they then will link in with European initiatives, um, because it is interesting. I mean, the emphasis and so on, quite rightly, that's on this issue in uh, in, in Ireland and the EU in general is not the same globally. And that is another layer of complexity because a lot of the really, really uh, star performers um, are globally very mobile. And, you know, essentially, if the if the rules of the game became um, unusually and overly onerous in Ireland, they would simply relocate elsewhere. And that's the kind of delicate balance that we have to strike because, you know, we do, obviously we want the best and the brightest to be doing the research here. And that would benefit everyone in Ireland if they were in all sorts of ways. Um, but yet we do need to address the sustainability of that scholarly communications model. So it's, you know, it is it is really tricky, but a bit like the ebooks, I think, again, it certainly won't get solved any quicker, you know, by by not starting now. So I think it's really important. And I said, I'm delighted to particularly see that North call out recently. I think it's a real sign of progress. Yeah. And it's great to see that that libraries are, are clearly so actively involved and, you know, it's so much of these discussions because they are really large and complex problems. A lot of it, as you said, comes back to capacity, capacity on site. If you're just worried about keeping the doors open and you know, make sure all your staff are OK, it's it's difficult to to tackle problems that are big and strategic and very complex and seem kind of far away. So with, with a lot of these things, it always comes back to, to people and capacity and the, the human element. Um, so I suppose your other role that you uh, uh your other hat that you wear is that you are president of the the lai and that really comes back to kind of the the, the human element and you know the promoting librarians and everything that we do uh do you want to talk about your kind of tenure as as uh, lai president and um you know your the, the professional body in general yeah sure it likes to i mean i suppose i go back first of all to how i got involved was I remember, I, I think it might have been Siobhan Fitzpatrick, who was then the head librarian at the Royal Irish Academy, approached me and she had always been very active in the LAI. And I have to say, frankly, it wasn't on my radar at all. You know, it's not something I was involved in. Um, um, but she, I would have known Siobhan very well. She worked through organisations like Connell and so on. And um, she was talking to me a bit about how um, the LAI were very keen as representative body for libraries and librarians in Ireland to have a balance, you know, at the table, if you like, in terms of the different sectors and so on. And that there was a dirt at the time of academic librarians and also a dirt of male librarians. So I suppose I was ticking a couple of boxes. And would I be willing to put my name forward to be elected to got the call council if you like the sort of the board the lai so i thought about it for a while and one thing i have to say i really um 
admired when I was working actually going back to as a management consultant was we did a lot of work for the public sector and usually in the public sector you'd end up engaged with uh, trade unions you know if you wanted to bring in a certain change or exposure an issue there would always be a trade union perspective if you like or a representative organization perspective on whatever the issue might be and I was always struck by in general the professionalism and the dedication of those people so I call that you know here is a representative organization for a profession that I really enjoy working in. I frankly couldn't explain why I hadn't been more aware of it beforehand. So I said, yeah, yeah, I'm very happy to get involved. And I did. And I have to say, I really enjoyed my time there. And then um, I was asked, would I consider down the road, um, uh, would I consider putting my name forward to become a vice president and in due time president? And I said I would, because I suppose the first thing I would say is that you know, I'm so grateful really to librarianship for the great um, career and experience and everything else that it gave me that I felt it was an opportunity to give back. I mean, I've, I've, I've always been struck by, since I was a very junior librarian, you know, the collegiality and supportiveness and friends to colleagues, whatever problem I was trying to solve, that you could just ring people up and they'd tell you, you know, warts and all, their experience, whatever the issue was, and then yeah. bit by bit, we'd all kind of generally make progress together. And I really enjoyed that. So. I suppose for me it was an opportunity um, to give back but also I guess um, one thing I didn't really particularly have because I suppose I've been down this detour where I was in consulting for a while and so on is I didn't have a massive network of sort of professional colleagues so on so I saw it as an opportunity as well to develop my network and now I've so many you know contacts and colleagues all across the country in all sorts of sectors of libraries and it's really like we learn so much from each other and th this again came yeah. to the fore I have to say for example during COVID because here we are we're all dealing with this same issue we all COVID obviously a national issue but the it was interesting to see how the different sectors responded uh, and to learn from each other and so on and I think we certainly did and particularly um, because I think in general with a lot of organizations communications maybe weren't working as well as they would have you know, if it had we mm -hmm. all been pre-pandemic so sometimes you know people would have gotten news about the latest uh, restrictions that were coming in or the latest rules we had to follow before we might let's say internally and so on and that kind of um, network was so so valuable so again I'd, I'd, I'd say you know um, really important uh, uh, aspect of being in the LAI but the other thing I would say as well then is like I do believe that it, one of the things that distinguishes us as professionals is that it's important that we represent ourselves and issues of concern so going back to things like the ebook OS SOS um, campaign mm -hmm. so on like I think it's important that we do take a stand on those issues because you know that's what we're about and also like if we don't who else will and that's you know you know what's yeah. that phrase you know all it, all it requires for evil the tribes for, for good men to do nothing you know well if, you know if good librarians don't stand up about issues that are related to libraries well who else is going to do it then we know people yeah. just ride, ride roughshod but the last thing i suppose i would say as well is that like i'm always very keen to say to lai members particularly if i've asked them to do something for me or to take on a role you know like i'm i remember phil cohen always had this great phrase like well what's in it for me and there has to be something in it for everyone and it goes back to something you said earlier actually about for example um you know financial management and so on well if you get involved in associations you know often you can get exposed to things like maybe you might be a treasurer for a group or a section or something like that long before you might have the opportunity within the organizational hierarchy to take on that kind of role and that can actually really stand to you down the road so and i and i think that's very appropriate like you know people shouldn't i'm very wary always and I think librarians walk a thin line, you know, we're not saints or we're not sort of, um, you know, vocational, you know, devotees to, you know, you know, don't, don't worry about paying us or don't worry about how many hours we work. On yeah, no, like, we, you know. we can fall into the vocational <laughs> or a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So I'm very happy that there has to be something in it for somebody for like, they're going to take on an extra mm. bit of work. And and that's one of the things it can offer, as well as all these other kind of uh, networking and all the rest of it. And I guess. One thing then that that has given me the opportunity as well is is for example to begin then to work with people like Philip Cohen and Marion Higgins then to look at things like say like bringing the World Library Information Congress to Ireland mm -hmm. so obviously that's part of IFLA which is the International Federation of Library Associations and you can say okay well what can we do with this now like you know we we have all this energy and enthusiasm and ability in Irish librarianship like how can we demonstrate that and like one thing is that well look let's bring the world here and let's show them how good Irish libraries are um. And, you know, I suppose bringing IFLA here was a massive deal before COVID, um, mm. but it's an even bigger deal afterwards now, you know. So um, I want to say afterwards, I'm fully acknowledging that COVID hasn't got away, but you know, after the deepest lockdown. So, like, it's been such a, a crazy journey uh, from, you know, back in 2016, myself and Philip in America sort of 
tentatively put me out the feelings about what people would think about this idea through to making the pitch in Poland and in Kuala Lumpur and it sounds crazy but like that's all that was involved and then in Athens in 2019 got up on the stage with the ambassador and say now see in Dublin in the August 2020 never obviously <laughs> me, never knowing what, what, what was and, ahead <laughs> and then that sort of terrible time in the spring of 2020 mm-hmm. when you know, yeah, this thing is happening over in China. It doesn't sound great. Uh, there's one or two cases here. It doesn't sound great. Uh, and then to very quickly sort of, there's a lot of cases here. Doesn't look great. We might take a breather for two weeks, then we'll be back to then around the end of March, start of April, the penny dropping thing. This thing is not happening this year. Uh, we've got to um, pause. Um, and then rising from the ashes like the phoenix you know with if let's say look we'd love to go back to, to dublin if you'd have us and if you're up for it and not taking it for granted and unfortunately everyone wasn't everyone who was involved in 2020 bid wasn't in a position to be involved in uh, mm-hmm. 2022 obviously like we literally had retirements uh all sorts of issues people had changed jobs careers lives and so on in, that, in those intervening years but the vast bulk of us were up for it again so we said yeah let's give it a go and here we are now just uh three weeks away from it and you know despite you know the COVID situation and all these other things like it is looking really good uh two things I'm particularly pleased about is the delicate numbers are over 1600 and in our revised estimate like we had hoped back in 2020 it was going to be the biggest one ever which would be about 4,000 and I think we Mm. could have done that but you know I think think those days probably are gone forever frankly unless there's you know maybe a generational change down the road down the line um just with, with with people's concerns around travel and so on as a result of the pandemic um but we had said a minimum of 1,500 and now we're over 1,600. But also really, really importantly, because one of the whole reasons we wanted to have it here was I, we were very concerned that the uh, IFLA here might be very Eurocentric um, because of mm-hmm. those travel restrictions. But now we have, uh, say, over 1,600 delegates from over 110 countries. Um, and even people that we thought wouldn't be able to come at the start of the year from places like New Zealand, Australia, part of Asia and South America so on, are now able to come. So, you know, that really will mean that the kind of colour and the vibrancy and all the things that really make up an IFLA are going to be part of it. And it won't just be this European centric uh, experience, which might have been the case had uh, some of the restrictions and so on stayed in place. So like, I think it really is a great opportunity. It's going to be um, three days and then another day of library visits and another day of uh, business meetings of, you know, hundreds, thousands of librarians coming talking about all sorts of issues like from artificial intelligence through to library history and everything in between. A great opportunity for the Irish library community to show what we're about from simple things like the Library Boulevard, which is a collection of posters talking about library work and projects in Ireland. True to, we have many Irish speakers speaking at different sessions uh, across the different, um, the, the gamut of different issues that have been raised. And then also just an opportunity for our visitors to both see our libraries, but also more important to see our country. And I mean, I'd have to say, you know, I credit where it's due to the government and to the tourism authorities that they were very supportive in 2020. They're even more supportive this year, I would have to say, because I do see this really as the kind of event that they need to get back. You know, so many people in hospitality and in all sorts of related areas obviously had an awful time but, uh, over the last couple of years. And these are the kind of events that really kind of help them feel right. We're getting back on track. So, uh, again, I think it's really good for libraries and librarianship that we can um, do that. And like, frankly, that all came from uh, involvement in the LAI and just kind of saying, right, so where does the LAI connect internationally? It connects into IFLA. What's IFLA's big thing? Well, its big thing is its annual conference. Okay, well, can we bring that to here? And I'm just so pleased now it's coming and touch wood, everything will work out. We're very, very close now. Yeah, no disasters between now and the end of the month. Uh, I think, as you said, you know, you, you need to have a strong, um, a strong voice from your national professional body to be able to to pull off something like this. So you know, credit to uh, the LAI for putting the bid in and and doing the work. And it's been it's been a long and complicated road to get to this point. Um, and I'm sure it was really disappointing when in 2020 it 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 didn't happen for for you know all those reasons that everybody was contending with just the, the world falling apart. So it'll hopefully feel all the better when it does happen now, as you said, the, the Phoenix rising. Um, so we're really looking forward to welcoming the, the library community, the international library community to Ireland. Um, 
if you were recommending to uh, anyone who's going to be visiting um, or IFLA, what would be your uh, top go to kind of library related or literary tourist attractions you'd tell people to go to? Well, I have to say, and um, you know, this won't be this won't terribly surprise you. So you you might have seen the image for our sort of poster and for our the guide at the program and all the rest of it is the old library in Trinity. And mm. you know, again, it is a case of sort of you know uh, familiarity breeds contempt. So you know, I went to Trinity, I worked in Trinity, and so on. And uh, uh, but when we were doing our stand in Athens before uh, in 2019, you know. We literally had librarians from all the countries coming up and crying with excitement and with delight. If I said, I'm going to, you know, it's been my dream to go and see that library someday. And now because if mm. that's going to be in our dumb, I'll get to see it. So, you know, I, I I think that's going to be the headline act that everyone's going to, want to go to. And I'm delighted, for example, that Trinity are going to make access available at a discounted rate uh, to IFLA delegates, which is really, really good and generous of them. And also there is going to be a reception for what they call the IFLA officers in, the, in Trinity in the old library. And again, that's a really special um and generous um offer from trinity because uh, these are the people essentially work on a most of them vast majority of them on a, on a voluntary basis to keep ifla going i'm an officer myself with an ifla section and it's just a nice thank you back to them for that particularly again after the last couple of years during the pandemic um but really importantly and what i've said to both uh, any international guests I'm dealing with, but also any library colleagues I get to deal with is like we fully expect, particularly in the Dublin region, but really all around the country, people will just be walking into your libraries going, hey, I'm here for IFLA, you know, kind of have a look around and that we do, you know, really live that welcome and professional collegiality that we're famous for. Because first of all, I think, you know, it's, it is really important and it will give delegates that experience we want them to have. But secondly, I mean, that's part of why I got involved. I mean, when I, another reason I got involved in IFLA was um, when I was planning the building, you know, we went abroad to, to several countries to look at best practice elsewhere. And mm. You know, I didn't know, as I said earlier, I had no great network or anything. So I was just ringing cold calling people off websites and so on. And the generosity of colleagues from around the world astounded me. So, uh, you know, again, if I saw an opportunity to give back to the international community, I said I'd take it, which I can do now through IFLA. Uh, the one that sticks out in my mind was I remember there was a guy called Jeff Treziak, who was the uh, universal librarian McMaster at the time. And I phoned him. I said, look, I can be in in Canada on this particular day, you know, can I come and see your library? Because I'd read it, it was very impressive. He goes, oh, yeah, great, great, come and see me. Um, and I remember walking in, it's very quiet. And it turned out it was Canada Day. So basically their equivalent of St. Patrick's Day. But he was too polite to tell me that really he was coming in on their St. Patrick's Day to show around. <laughs> Brought myself and two of my colleagues from Anuth for a lovely meal and talked mm-hmm. to us about the project and all the rest. Of it. And the other two colleagues weren't librarians. They were um, kind of facilities and IT people that were part of the project team and uh, they were just bowled over by this I said actually in librarianship that wouldn't be that unusual like I'm still not taking it for granted I'm very grateful but so and so I would you know be really eager that we show that same kind of which we're known for around the world anyway to to our guests and then you know that we help them and of course I've told lots of them to um, for example seek out some of the lesser known treasures like the Chester Beatty Library and so on Mm. uh, around Dublin but then also just some of the great public libraries we have and one thing that you can't really appreciate you've seen is it's how diverse um, IFLA is and Mm. therefore how diverse the interests are so you know we have school librarians health librarians so they're going to want to go and see obviously you know what they're interested in and the other thing as well which as well which is you know difficult to get your head around first of all when you're getting used to it is is the different stages of development that all these different libraries are at. So I remember going to an equipment session or whatever, and like there was one guy uh, speaking from um, uh, a library in Africa, and like he was talking about installing a Wi-Fi network in his library, which of course you know wasn't hugely beneficial to someone like myself who we've had it for so long. But for delegates from other other parts of the world, this is revolutionary. And when he talked about mm-hmm. the change led to in his library and all the rest of it, you know, they were getting quite a lot out of that. Uh, you know, whereas then the next speaker might be from MIT and talk about how they've now got a robot who does whatever, you know. So yeah. it's that diversity. You just really have to kind of throw yourself into it and enjoy it. And 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 just, you know, even if even if you yourself, for, for example, aren't getting something out of a particular session to watch how other delegates are. And the fact that we get the opportunity to host that, um, you know, in in um, in Ireland, which, you know, I think we do. And we talked about this earlier in terms of what's been happening in libraries and other jurisdictions. You know, we do value our libraries and uh, we are very lucky to have a very yeah. strong and active and um, I would say courageous and innovative 
uh, cadre of librarians in Ireland that we really get the chance to show the world, you know, what that means and all the, on all the different benefits that can deliver, not just for libraries, but for society in general. Yeah, yeah, we are lucky we have that strong literary tradition. Um, so our libraries are valued. Um, and it's a good point you made there about what, what innovation looks different depending on the size of your library and the challenges you're faced with. Um, you know, librarians do enjoy a challenge and innovation. Is, it'll be an interesting opportunity to see um, the challenges that are being faced in libraries in, in other locations and the ways that they're meeting um, some of the things that they're facing and, and some of the, the solutions that are being evolved in, in other locations and there's always, always room for inspiration um, and and connections uh, and yeah I, I do expect all of our, our libraries will be be very busy uh, certainly Trinity's going to be uh, inundated probably uh, absolutely yeah, both, no, both the old library and uh, with with uh, both normal people and conversations yeah. with friends featuring uh, Trinity's lovely <laughs> brutalist uh, Berkeley Library there'll probably be some visitors in there too so I would expect uh, an, a big <laughs> number of visitors uh, into Trinity it'll be nice to to open our doors um, to the world. Absolutely and I mean particularly uh, I think any at any time as said but particularly now when this is the first in-person IFLA since 2019 so mm -hmm. like that's going to be really important and I think that's why they want to come back to Dublin they see it as a good place to kind of get back on track and um, because you know, we saw this ourselves locally with a few events in terms of, for example, the Connell Conference recently. Like, we, you know, we did really show how innovative and all the rest we are as, as, a, as a profession to have so many successful and really enjoyable uh, online events. But there is something particularly special and useful about an in-person meetup, particularly when they are, you know, it's been so long. Uh, yeah. uh, as it has been in this case. So that's something that um, I think people are really looking forward to. And particularly now, as I said, that so many international delegates can come here. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really, really exciting. And we have a number, for example, about 12 satellite events out of side of the Congress that are bringing people as well. And then we've other related events. So for example, in Manute, there's this Wikimedians conference. Uh, yeah. And like, I was fascinated just talking to organise that. Like, so the third biggest group of delegates uh, attending that are from Nigeria. You know, mm -hmm. so just to get those uh, kind of librarians into into Ireland after so long, it's just such a wonderful opportunity for us to meet these colleagues that realistically we'd never have met otherwise, and to just share experiences and 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 learn from each other. I mean, for all that we have great things to tell them, I'm I, you know I've always learned something as well at at, at an IFLA. so that's you know, that's really important as well. It won't just be a uh, it'll be a two way street. It won't just be a one way street. Mm -hmm. Um. So if people haven't signed up. Uh, to come to, to IFLA yet, they can still register. Yeah. There's still plenty of time. And right now, as it happens, uh, I've emailed all LEI members. We have a very small number of free tickets that we can give out to uh, um, LEI members if they can't attend otherwise. And we're currently working to that. But then obviously, yes, people can still register both either as a full delegate or for uh, um, as a day delegate. Um, and then even if you can't or don't want to or for whatever reason uh, aren't able to go to the full uh, Congress, you can register separately for the satellite events and they're usually either low cost or no cost. So, for example, the ebooks one I'm involved in, there's no cost. Um, uh, and then some of the other ones do have a cost, but it's usually just to cover, you know, the venue or the catering or whatever. So like that is part of that. And again, OK, you might be at the full uh, IFLA Congress, but you'll get to, to meet delegates who are going there and so on. And even then, you know, socially out and about in Dublin over the um, over the days of the Congress, you might have an opportunity to catch up with them. So because that's another nice thing I think to like about Dublin. If it doesn't typically go to small cities like Dublin, it's the first time mm. in a long time it's been anywhere as small as Ireland. Um, so it will mean that, you know, when you have 1600 librarians walking around Dublin in that really compact period of time, uh, I think it's going to be uh, impossible not to bump into colleagues and so on. So that's going to be really nice as well. Just that sort of uh, serendipity, I hope, that comes out of, you know, yeah. people, because I've no doubt that as well as all the uh, important library stuff that they'll be after, delegates are going to want to sample a bit of our culture and our other tourism offerings as well. And that's great as well. And that's very important for Dublin and for the country as well. Yeah. And hopefully we'll get um, people, particularly in Ireland, at, at all stages of their career, um, getting involved, even if they can't go, as you said, if they can't go to, to the full event, just going to one day or going to one of the satellites or taking advantage of, of some of the, the, the free places. Um, you know, hopefully there is an opportunity for people, regardless of where you are uh, professionally or whether Absolutely. you're currently employed or not, that you should be able to get some access. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say as well, the LAI sections, again, have really stepped up here. So a number of them have provided scholarships and various mm-hmm. sort of other avenues for, for members as well. And that's been great to see as well. Like it really has been, you know, there's this great Irish word, Mel, like it's that's the real sense we've got, you know, as a, there's obviously a national committee of about 20 of us who are doing the vast bulk of the work. But anytime we've reached out to colleagues for help or support in whatever way, be it as say your section or group offering a, a, a scholarship or it may be a particular task we need help with, like it's been really, really um humbling and pleasing to see the positive response we get. So we're very, very grateful for that as well. And I think it's all going to add to making the IFLA the great success I hope it'll be. Hopefully, yeah. Okay. Well so we're we're very much looking forward to, to welcome every welcoming everyone to, to Dublin. Uh Cal, thank you so much for, for your time and and for talking to me today. And I, I look forward to uh seeing you at, at IFLA and uh, we look forward to welcoming everyone uh to Dublin for IFLA. Thanks very much, Laura. Can't wait. Thanks to Cahill for his time and for being such a great guest. As Cahill said, um, we're looking forward to welcoming our international colleagues to Dublin for IFLA. So we'll be operating an open door policy in our libraries. So please do visit as many as you can. If you missed the live stream of the Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Irish Libraries discussion, you can watch that on the IFLA YouTube page. Um, I'll put the link on the, the show notes. If you are joining us in Dublin, do enjoy the city, uh, spread the love and visit some of the smaller libraries or literary sites, uh, take in some of the walking tours, sample some Irish craft beers. Yes, there's more to Ireland than Guinness. Um, but a word of warning, beware of the seagulls. They will steal your chips. I hope to have more episodes focusing on IFLA coming your way in the next few weeks. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple, SoundCloud or Stitcher to get them when they land. Until next time. Librarians Allowed is produced and presented by Laura Rooney Ferris. Music and editing are by Michael Ferris.